Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a new podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA, where we study change in order to make change. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History, and I direct the Luskin Center. The goal of this podcast is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine a better future. We're pleased to welcome today Professor Michael Morantz, a fellow historian in the UCLA History Department and the chair of the UCLA Academic Senate. Michael's scholarly work has focused on early American history with a particular interest in law and different systems of punishment. He's also a very keen observer of trends in higher education in the United States, and we're very pleased to welcome you, Michael, to the podcast. Great to have you on. Great to be here. Right, so let's jump right in uh, to the then portion of our show, which focuses on the historical past. And I'd like to ask you from your perspective as an historian, whether you can help us understand the nature of the challenge that UCLA and higher education in the United States in general face today in historical terms. Um, Is there anything to which we can compare this current moment, um, the Great Depression uh, or the Great Recession of 2008, 2009? Through your historical lenses, what does this look like, the crisis we face in historical terms? You know, that's, it's a very interesting question. And um, what I would say is that I think we are looking at something that potentially could be the Great Depression and um, may very well become the Great Depression if people think about it as if it's the Great Recession. So let's bring those two together. Um, as you know, from the in the Great Recession, what really happened was... Uh, sort of a doubling down of the previously existing financial system, um, a bailout that was a non-productive bailout because it went largely to banks and creditors. And it didn't, in fact, lead to much in the way of new thinking about either higher education or political economy. The Great Depression, on the other hand, um, did lead to a dramatic rethinking and reinvigoration of the public and the public sphere. One thinks about things like the work, Works Project uh, Projects Administration. Um, there was a lot of rethinking of higher education, and then during the war and after, a dramatic expansion and democratization of higher education. So the danger is that we're facing the Great Depression, but that people will treat it as if it's the Great Recession and think that they can just double down on what's already existing. And so what lessons do you think we can learn from what took place in the Great Depression and the response to the Great Depression? It sounds like um, a radically different notion of government and government involvement were present than we currently have today. Yes, I, I think that one of the things, I mean, it was, there were problems with the response of the New Deal. And obviously, we don't need to Um, reinvent the Cold War, only now with China and Iran. But one of the things that became clear in the Great Depression was the importance of having uh, competent, large public institutions 
and a vision of the role of the state as um, a mechanism by which we can act collectively. That's all been undermined um, since the 1970s in a variety of ways, with the result that burdens are now shifted onto individuals, regulations on companies and corporations are reduced, and there's this notion that the only thing that should be valued is what can be valued by the market. That's created inequality. It's led to a, a collapse of our public health systems, um, growing um, disparity in educational outcomes. And we need to, I think, take this opportunity to, to dramatically rethink both the place of the university and society and also rethink the notion of what we think society should look like, what a good society should look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it does seem like there's a radically different notion of what government can and should be um, as we think of the arc from the Great Depression to the present. Um, their provider and partner um, in um, allowing for um, those in greatest need to make their way out of that uh, uh, abyss. And today, um, the sense that government is the enemy of the people. Um, and I guess in, in th- applying that to the history of our education, um, you know, I'm curious to hear how you see the arc of the American university, say over the last 90 or 100 years. Um, what is that, what does the, the, the narrative look like to you? Um, is it um, a narrative of the move from a golden age of state-supported, publicly-minded institutions to one in which universities are elitist, corporatist in nature, much less publicly minded, in a sense, tracking uh, the development you just spoke of um, with respect to our understanding of the role of government in society? Does university, does the American university follow that path? I think that the American university has largely followed the path that you have laid out there. I mean, I'm a little... Um, reluctant to speak about a golden age. Um, what I think one can see is that in the late, uh, from the late 1950s through the late 1960s and maybe the early 1970s, one had a dramatic reformation and expansion of higher education. It was partial. It was um, incomplete. Uh, it favored um, mostly uh, uh, white people and exclude white males of a certain age. Um, but it was, in fact, a dramatic expansion, not just at places like UC, which went from uh, very few campuses to a, a large system across the 60s, but also at something like CSU in California, which was um, allowed huge numbers of, of young people who couldn't, who wouldn't have been able to attend college before to attend college. And it also led to a, a wide um, expansion in the, num- in the amount of socially important and useful research. Again, it was unequal. Women didn't really gain access in the same way until the 70s. Underrepresented minorities still do not have full access. But I think it it was a moment of an expansion and a recognition that we needed a society that was um, educated in a shared way and that that 
uh, education should be provided through public means. That all has been undermined over the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah. And when and why did that um, sort of expansive, at least partially democratizing impulse come to an end? I think you can see that the um, the democratizing impulse began to come to an end um, at in the early 1970s. It wasn't uh, fully actualized until later, but one can see the rise of a, a certain amount of, of criticism and a withdrawal on the parts of state funding beginning in the 70s. It was intensified in the 90s and then after the turn of the century. And unfortunately, um, although this is often not talked about, it came about at a moment when the university had become dramatically more open uh, to different sorts of students. Now, those students had, in a sense, forced their way in through protests, but it had led to a a, um, an expansion uh, in the range of people who were attending college. It uh, resulted in an expansion of the sorts of disciplines that were um, being established to study society and culture. And um, as the university population, as the student population became more diverse, uh, you began to see a reaction to that um, that was often uh, couched in terms of not wanting to pay the taxes that were necessary in order to support these enterprises. And, um, you know, you can see this particularly in California where uh, the electorate is distinctly different uh, from the total population and it works to reduce support for taxation in the public interest. One thing that I do think is important to recognize about the American case, and there's a positive aspect to this and a negative aspect to this, is that unlike many other countries, higher education is not primarily funded on a federal level, on the national level. It's funded through the states. And so all of these histories are are very particular and are different depending on what state you're in. In California, we have one sort of history, but if you were to look at Alabama or Montana, you would have a very different sort of history. And and that's led to this sort of tax problem. Right. And it seems to me, notwithstanding those differences, there is a certain shift that seems to be present across the board, which is in a certain public perception of the university, having moved from being uh, a key engine of innovation to a kind of burdensome luxury. Um, and certainly in the minds of those who regard state support for universities as uh, a waste of resources. Um, and that seems to be somewhat, that seems to be across the board, even in California, we experience this. You know, I think that that is tied to growing inequality in society, but I also think it's tied to um, growing inequality amongst higher education institutions. Uh, and part of what ha- has happened, especially as the burden of cost has shifted onto individuals and their families, is that higher ed is itself um, increasingly stratified by income. The amount of money UCLA has to spend on a student compared to the amount of money 
say Stanford or Duke has to spend on a student are is dramatically different. And so higher ed does seem to many to simply be reproducing the inequalities that exist in society as opposed to working against them. Right. Not to mention comparing UCLA to Cal State institutions or community colleges, which represent another level on the uh, the ladder. Yeah. Um, I want to turn, if I can, to your work um, with the Academic Senate. Um, It must be an interesting position for you. You're not only a careful student of um, university administration, but I should say that over the course of your career, you've been a frequent critic and a trenchant critic of university administration. And now you're in the position of chair of the Academic Senate. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the history of the Academic Senate and even more particularly the idea of shared governance. When did that idea come about and how has it operated over the course of time? Sure. Um, I mean, shared governance varies by the institution. Um, It has a long presence in the University of California. And I think for this purpose, that's what I'll talk about. It's, It's much weaker in a lot of other institutions. And it simply is a notion that um, the collective faculty should have a significant role to play in the governance and organization of the university. Um, And as a mechanism to make sure that academic values um, and educational considerations lead university decision-making. Um, the Academic Senate actually ex- has existed as long as the University of California has. Um, as I often remind um, administrators, it existed before any notion of the administration existed, which is which has grown up around the office originally of the president. Um, and it, the Academic Senate was written into the founding documents of the university. As a meaningful notion, shared governance at UC um, has really grew up out of, uh, in effect, a faculty revolt at Berkeley, which at that point was the um, primary campus, uh, in 1919, 1920, uh, in response to being excluded from important decisions. And uh, at that point, the regents um, began a process by which the academic senate was granted certain clear authority and the ability to control its own business and it has with to with different effect um, been a key player uh, in the governance of the university um, both on campuses and on a system-wide level since then so that now one can think about, uh, if, if, if you think about the, um, the University of California building in Oakland, there are three entities that exist at, uh, in Oakland in the, in the building. One is the Office of the Regents, one is the Office of the President, and one is the Office of the Academic Senate. Um, that implies an equality that doesn't actually exist but it does um, signify the way that the relationship is supposed to work. And I presume there have been ebbs and flows in the balance of uh, the relationship amongst those three actors. Um, I want to now turn to the now portion of our conversation 
and ask you, how is shared governance working today at UCLA in, and in the UC system in this time of unprecedented challenge? Well, I think that um, I, I think there's a distinction. I think that um, shared governance uh, is working well at UCLA. Um, I think it's working less well um, at the university, at the system-wide level. Um, you know, one of the things that um, has resulted or um, become clear uh, during this crisis is that uh, without an effective uh, communication and willingness to engage in some form of partnership uh, between the administration and the academic senate, uh, the university is not going to function well. Uh, and the administration this year has uh, understood that and been quite open to that. And we've understood that and been quite open to that as well. Um, simply responding to the necessity of asking students to leave campus for their own safety led to all sorts of transformations that could only have been accomplished uh, because of a series of engagements and shared commitments. Uh, at the system-wide level, I think it's much more dubious. Um, and it's a process that I think the current UC regents um, do not understand and um, are not particularly friendly to. And that poses problems for how the university is going to manage over the next few years. What are you, what are you referring to, if you can reveal any of your concerns? Well, I just, I just think that, um, I, I, I think that the, um, that the regents do not really understand what goes on on campuses, and they're not um, they're not well versed in either academic or educational questions. None of them are are either academics. One is an educator who is um, the chancellor of the community college system, but I think the gap between um, the way in which the regions approach questions and the reality and the stresses that are faced on the ground on the campuses is particularly large at this point. And I'm just wondering if that translates into what, uh, for many students and faculty, is a source of great concern and anxiety, which is the prospect that one thing the corona crisis has done is made clear to university administrators and uh, trustees that it's much more cost-effective to educate students uh, via uh, Zoom than it is um, physically in, in classrooms. Um, and I'm wondering, what's the state of the conversation um, from your perspective on that future prospect? Well, I think there are a few things to be said about that. First, um, it's only cost-effective if you don't care how well you're educating. If, in fact, you care about the quality of education, it's not, in fact, cost-effective because remote education um, through Zoom is not an adequate substitute for um, in-person um, 
education, nor does it provide the wide um, range of experiences that students um, both expect and deserve that they receive from a residential experience. And in fact, one of the things that has been clear for years to anyone who is not a simple promoter of ed tech um, is that uh, education and digital means, uh, if it's done properly, actually has huge labor costs and um, uh, is a very expensive enterprise to put on. So I, I, I think first we need to recognize that the presumption that this is cheaper only um, follows if you don't care about the quality of the education. The second thing I would say is that I don't think that um, there is a shared assumption that it is either cheaper or desirable. Um, I don't actually think that um, campus administrators want to turn the University of California into a digital university. They may want to offer some selected um, opportunities online in either by creating a certain number of truly online classes or offering some professional school programs that can be offered online. But I don't actually think if you talk to any chancellor or vice chancellor um, in the UC system that you would find any of them are going to defend remote education. That may be, that is different from, I think, what some regions think. But again, that's because the regions are very far from the reality of education. And what they see simply is the possibility of moving people moving students through and increasing the number of degrees without actually thinking about what the quality of that degree would be. We'll give the regents a right of response on that. Um, but something it seems to me has to give because there's a staggering decline in revenue. Um, I think uh, I read that in March alone, the University of California was down $600 million uh, in revenue. Um, and so I'm wondering how, from your perspective, I mean, you're deeply involved on a daily basis in conversations about the present and future of the university. How does the future look to you? What, what significant changes do you think will have to be made in order to take stock of, uh, of this tremendous uh, financial hit? What does the near-term, intermediate-term, long-term future look like for UCLA and, and higher education in general? Well, I think there are a couple of things to be said about that. Um, just for clarity's sake, the $600 million hit that you're referring to um, includes losses at the medical centers. Um, because as you know, um, the University of California medical centers have uh, transformed themselves in preparation for treating COVID-19 patients and therefore have effectively emptied out their normal uh, population of cases. So um, both for the, because of uh, healthcare considerations and also simply to empty beds. 
Um, and so what you're talking about there, about half of that loss, a little under half of that loss, has to do with the lost revenue from either um, doctor's appointments or procedures that have been postponed. And it will take a long time to make all of that up. I think that the um, the long-term uh, implication of this, uh, besides the fact that it would be good if we could transform America into a modern society, is that there will have to be a new social compact, and it will probably have to include the federal government, um, because the next few years economically are going to be extraordinarily difficult. Um, the revenue, as you say, is is down, and um, the longer we are forced to do remote education, the longer that revenue will be down. And um, it will probably um, necessitate some serious thinking on the part of faculty, staff, administrators about what um, the role of the university, any university, but it's UCLA and UC in particular, uh, really needs to be um, in relationship to society and in relationship to knowledge. And um, those are going to be hard and long decisions to make, but I don't really see how, um, how we can avoid a socially disastrous shrinking of higher education without um, a recommitment from public sources of funding. I mean, these are, that's a huge, huge question. And um, one would like to think that a crisis of this scale would induce that kind of reimagining of government and its role uh, and public support for higher education and a social welfare system. Um, uh, and yet one says that without total confidence that we will see it. Um, maybe on a more local um, and time-specific uh, basis, do you think we'll be back on campus in fall? I think that's impossible to know. Um, you know, one of the things that I think people need to recognize is that that is only to some extent under the control of the campus. Um, you know, the campus is required to follow directions from the L.A. County Department of Public Health. Um, and we have to um, keep track of the effect um, and this, you know, the spread and the situation with COVID. I think that one can say that everyone I know would like to be back in the fall as much as is possible while maintaining safety for students and employees. But at this point, it's impossible to predict if that's going to be possible, if it's going to be possible um, for a smaller number of students, um, if it's going to be possible to have some research started up again. Uh, there are all sorts of questions like that. And in fact, there is a task force that has just started up to try to think through the different scenarios. But ultimately, um, we are as um, dependent on the reality of the pandemic and what uh, public health officials say about the pandemic as 
anyone else is in terms of making the final decision. So, Michael, you're um, a sober realist, not given to flights of um, excessive optimism. I'm wondering what, if anything, gives you hope in the midst of this crisis? What have you seen, if anything, that gives you um, a, a bit of encouragement for what what awaits us? Well, I would say um, two things. One, um, and there, and one is a is reading from a negative. But I would say two things. One, I have been impressed by um, the commitment of faculty, staff. Um, and the administration to try to um, figure out a way to to handle this crisis in a way that is safe and um, in line with uh, our better angels, as they say, and the enormous commitment that people have shown in this to the life of the mind. Uh, I honestly don't think it can be sustained you know as you probably know faculty are working um constantly to handle their classes and it's just not a sustainable thing but the actual commitment and um uh interest in working with students i think has been really quite inspirational the other thing that i would say um given my hopes for what the university will look like after this uh, is the evidence from students that they really want the full university experience, that they do not want a digital online experience that they take from home um, without being on campus, without having face-to-face interaction with peers and with, with faculty. You know, I think that one of the things that has become clear through this unfortunate situation is that students actually um, want to be on campuses and want to um, take advantage of the full resources of universities and colleges and that we need to figure out a way to make that possible at the other end of this disaster. Um, So as we move towards the end of this episode of Then and Now, I'd like to ask you, Michael, um, what, if any, historical lessons can we learn from? What chapters or events or inspiring actors from the past can serve as guides in this period? Well, as I mentioned at the the top of the hour um, or the top of the conversation, I think that for all of its flaws... um, if you look at something like uh, the Work pro- um, Projects Administration in the New Deal, uh, you can see a commitment to provide people with the opportunity to put their skills to work and their their talents to work um, for the good of the whole of society. And this includes cultural workers. It includes uh, engineers. Um, you know, I, I think that what we really need to do is recognize that the great economic challenge that we face is, on the one hand, um, climate-based, but on the other hand, is that we operate in a with a system that 
uh, is not actually geared towards providing people with the opportunities to do what they do best. And so we have tremendously unemployed human potential that could be um, awakened um, in the interest of society as a whole. You know, again, the New Deal was very partial. Um, it had all sorts of constraints. It embodied um, various structures of discrimination. But the idea that um, we are failing ourselves and our society by not um, allowing people to work for the common good is, I think, a lesson that we can take as we, once we are allowed to begin to move beyond social distancing. And I think universities can play a central role in that. Um, I'd like to thank you, uh, my friend and colleague, Michael Morans, professor of history and chair of the UCLA Academic Senate for this uh, really interesting and informative conversation. And thanks, Michael, for making time out of your busy schedule. I know you have meetings night and day. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. It's been a pleasure to be here. Then and Now is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Then and Now can be found on Spotify and Apple Podcast. And let us know your thoughts about this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu. That's luskincenter, L-U-S-K-I-N, center, at history.ucla.edu. Until next time, this is David Myers wishing you a healthy and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>